let's go to the Word of God, uh, to the text uh, that um, we're going to be uh, looking at today. And the first text is in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do so in the land where you uh, go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great, that hath statutes and judgments so righteous, is all this law which I set before you this day? Okay, and then the uh, next verse is Romans chapter 2. Verses 17 through 20. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and rests in the law, and makes thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide to the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? And so on. Actually, verses 17 through 20. And I'm going to give uh, a little bit different, uh, uh, a little bit different uh, view of these verses here later on in the sermon. Okay. You're probably aware that there was a doctrine of the church that was really prevalent in the 20th century, and that was the doctrine of parentheses. Have you all heard of that doctrine? Now, what that doctrine stated, and it's been so prevalent that so many people today can't even think of leaving that doctrine, is that um, the church is only a temporary economy in God's purpose for this planet. And... Um, that uh, the real wife is actually the racial Israel, and the church is only a temporary wife, a concubine, in a sense. That means his real wife, his true wife, is not with him. She didn't want him, so she left him. So Christ is comforting himself with a concubine. And then later on, when the true wife comes back to him, he's going to be using the concubine to stir the true wife to... Uh, to, to, to love him again, to jealousy, so she's going to come back again to him, so he's going he's to uh, really uh, uh, reward the concubine to be in heaven with him, but she's not his real wife. His true wife is Israel. Well, there's no theological construct in all the 2,000 years of the church history that has done more damage to the church than this theological construct. In fact, what it has created is it has brought down the church from her pedestal of being the true wife of Christ to being only a limited thing in history. Uh, the church has become only a bonsai church. Do you all know what bonsai is? Bonsai is a, um, is a, a, a Japanese art where they, they make those really little oaks and... Um, and uh, um, maple trees, and, and so on, by doing what? By cutting their roots, okay? By cutting their roots. And so these trees grow really small. You can actually put them in a really small pot. So the church has become a bonsai church because the church actually has no roots in the Old Testament, okay? The roots are cut, so we're a bonsai church today in a bonsai pot, okay? The church is really uh, limited, small, ornamental, basically useless, Okay, because that's what bonsai is, right? You don't get a lot of fruit from a bonsai tree. That's what the church is today. Uh, a church that was intended by the Great Commission to establish the dominion of her husband on this planet is today one of the one of the weakest creatures in today's culture because of that bonsai concubine theology that we have today. 
the church, the prevalent culture is not addressed by the church anymore. Uh, what happens in the church, the, the powers of the day are not addressed by the church anymore. Why? Because the church is not supposed to talk to them. The church is only a temporary comfort for her Lord. Uh, this is the doctrine of the church that has been prevalent for uh, well over a century. And guess what? The doctrine of missions is a corollary of the doctrine of the church. So guess what? If we have a bonsai theology of the church, we will have a bonsai theology of missions. So when we go to the Bible, and a lot of theologians today, will, when we go to the Bible, when we ask, where in the Bible do we see the doctrine of foreign missions? How far back can we go to find out what the Bible says about foreign missions? They go back only as far as Paul. Okay? Why? Because we don't have roots in the Old Testament, right? We actually don't read in the Old Testament anymore. The Old Testament is just to, to give us some, some instruction, but not really. it's not really about the church. Because the church is a completely different economy. And uh, a missionary who, is, uh, who has the doctrine of the church as a concubine will not have a good theology of his missions. Okay? He'll be a limited missionary. He, he'll be a bonsai missionary. He'll be a missionary that only has this little of a message to the, nation, to the nations. Okay, the uh, mission activity has become only a Christian activity, New Testament activity that doesn't go back to the Old Testament. It has no roots at all. So, therefore, uh, we, we can't trace it back to uh, earlier than Pentecost. Okay, Pentecost was the, the, the first time when we see anybody of uh, foreign nations actually coming to God or anybody preaching to the foreign nations. What we're going to look at today is those verses will tell us that, in fact, was what Paul was doing in going to other nations, preaching God, preaching Christ and His salvation, was not a novelty. It was not a new thing. Paul was only following what the Old Testament commanded the Jews to do, and they didn't do. They did it in a very limited way, but we will see that foreign, foreign missions were an Old Testament thing. Foreign missions were there in the Old Testament, and Israel was supposed to be a missionary society before everything else. Now, if you go to some of the modern uh, theologians, especially those of premillennial and amillennial, I don't know if you know uh, if you all know what those words mean. Probably you do, but you will see that uh, when when they go to to the Israel of the of, of old, uh, they talk about Israel as being a, a theocratic church state mainly. So it was something that God established there in the land, and he, he had an idea of building that theocratic church state only to preserve the seed that will, will bring us to Christ, that, that will eventually uh, bring forth Christ. Okay? So it was a limited society, theocratic church state, and that was all. Well, it's true, Israel was theocratic, and theocratic means God rules. Everything must be theocratic, and everything is theocratic, whether we like it or not or whether the liberals like it or not, or whether the atheists like it or not, everything is theocratic. But Israel was not just a church state, because for quite a while, Israel didn't have a state. Remember that? They were under the Babylonian Empire. They were uh, under the Assyrians. They were under the Roman Empire. They didn't have a state. Was Israel not Israel? They were still Israel, right? God looked at them and he talked to them as if they were Israel. So God didn't really mean for them to be just a theocratic church state. Well, some other theologians will tell us that Israel was a racial stock. You know, they were just a specific race, specific gene, specific genes that were supposed to lead to Christ. And therefore, this is Israel. Okay, the genes, the specific genes of Abraham. That theory has a problem too. So many prominent Israelites were not Israelites. Exhibit A, David. Well, he has two pagans, Gentiles, in his lineage. Right? Rahab and Ruth. What do we do with that? Okay? What do we do with that? Uh, that theory doesn't, doesn't hold water either. When God made covenant with Israel, he didn't look at the genes of the person. What did he look at? The faith, right? So he, he didn't care about the genes that much. 
There are some uh, other people that say Israel was uh, just a liturgical society where we have all this high liturgy preserved throughout the centuries. Well, Israel didn't have liturgy for quite a while. They didn't have the temple for quite a while. Actually, most of Israel's history was without the temple. What did, they, what did Daniel do? Did Daniel worship at the temple? No. He was just praying to God in his room, right? Was he a true Israelite? Yeah. So what was Israel? Contrary to what all these theologians say, Israel was a missionary society. Israel was a missionary society. Israel's, the, 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 goal, the goal of the existence of Israel was to preach to the nations the law of God. The church state was only a tool for God's purpose. The racial core was only the seed of that missionary society, and only the seed. The worship ceremonies were only the symbolic shadow of that real purpose. But the real purpose of Israel was to be that missionary society that brings the gospel to the nations. Israel wasn't meant to be... All, all these theories have a problem. They suppose Israel to be closed within itself, an introvert society that didn't care about the nations outside. As a matter of fact, what we see in the Bible, in the Old Testament, Israel was supposed to be extrovert, open to the nations outside of it, teaching them the law of God. Uh, first of all, of course, we can go back to Abraham and see that the idea of believers being a light to the world was not introduced by Jesus Christ in the Bible. It was introduced to Abraham when God told him in Genesis 12:3, and I will bless you, bless them that bless you. And I will curse them that curse you, and in you shall who be blessed? All the families of the earth. All the families of the earth. Does he say only Israelites will be blessed in you? No. All the families of the earth. Now, some modern theologians, and today they, they, they put a different twist to it. They say, well, all the nations that support the nation of Israel will be blessed, and all the nations that fight against the nation of Israel will be blessed. But it doesn't say that. In the context of the covenant between Abraham and God, it only means that that personal covenant between God and Abraham was supposed to expand to become a personal covenant between God and the nations, and the families of the earth. Abraham had a mission. He was a missionary. And his mission was, make your faith the faith of whom? Of all the nations. Make your faith the faith of all, all these nations. This was also the meaning of the promise that Abraham will be the father of many nations. God didn't mean that he will be the, the, uh, the physical father of so many people, although that was part of the promise. But he meant that many covenant nations, not genetic nations, many covenant nations will come out of you. Okay? You'll be the father of many covenant nations. Your faith will become their faith. And that's your job. Go everywhere and preach the gospel. Be a missionary for me. Okay? Abraham was called to be a missionary. And in fact, that's how the New Testament authors in interpreted Abraham's ministry. And it's continuity in the New Testament. Romans 4.13 says, Abraham had a promise that he will become heir of the world. Did that mean that all non-genetic, all those that didn't have the genes of Abraham will be, will be uh, taken away from the planet and only Abraham's direct descendants are going to rule the planet? No, what it meant is the faith of Abraham will be the faith of those nations. Well, quite a few of the Christians today will say, you can say this about Abraham, but what about Moses? What about the law of Moses? It was certainly not supposed to be the law of many nations. It was supposed to be just the law of Israel, right? It was just limited to Israel. He specifically said, hear, O Israel. And then, uh, and then God gave the law. So it was supposedly, supposedly given only to Israel. Well, let's go to the verses that we just read in Deuteronomy 4. Listen to this. They're about to go into the land. They're about to kill all the people in that land. They're about to establish that theocratic society 
that God had for them in the promised land. And what does God tell them about the law? Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and understanding in the sight of whom? Of the nations. At the very beginning of renewing the covenant with the children of those that came out of Egypt, God says, this is your wisdom and understanding in the sight of of the nations. Israel went into the land knowing that they're going to be the light to the world. And that's how the renewal of the covenant started. The light of the world. You will be an example to many nations. And then the nations, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great who has God so near to them. That was the purpose of Israel. So here's the original commandment of, you are a city on a hill. When Jesus said, you're a city on a hill, he didn't, he didn't say anything new. Israel was supposed to be a city on a hill. That's what God told them in His law. Okay. So you're supposed to shine forth, he said to the Hebrews. Let all nations make the comparison between their laws and your laws. Between their gods and your God. Your mission is to make that comparison obvious to all nations. And to exhibit that superiority of your God and his law. So that the nations acknowledge it and accept your God as their God. And your people as their people. Remember that? Ruth 1.16. What did Ruth say to her mother-in-law? Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Ruth was an example of that mission accomplished. A Gentile, a pagan, a Moabite, one of the worst pagans there. And what happened to her? Wow, this is a great God. I want, I want him to be my God. I want your people to be my people. Okay? We see that mission accomplished in many, in many different uh, instances in the, Old, in the Old Testament. First of all, we see Israel coming out of Egypt leading a diverse multitude. Exodus 12:38. We see that there were multitude of nations coming out of Egypt with them. Well, later on, we don't see all these nations. Where are they? What do you think happened to them? Did they die in the wilderness? What happened to their children? They became part of Israel. They became evangelized. We don't know if they came out of Egypt because they believed in the God of, in, in the, God of the Hebrews. We know that they just came out of Egypt with them. We know they were separate from Israel. Forty years, we hear nothing of them. What happened to these people? They, become, they became Israelites. There were probably Ethiopians, Egyptians, Midianites, all kinds of people. They came out of Egypt, they became Hebrews. They became evangelized. Israel was doing, Israel was actually working on their mission even without knowing it. Because God brought people with them, nations with them out of Egypt to incorporate them into the nation of Israel, to make them Israelites, to make them people of the faith. That's exactly what he told Abraham. Your faith is going to become the faith of many nations. Okay? And then um, we see that the law had provisions for accepting ethnic strangers as citizens. Now, it had some, some limitations about Egyptians and it had some limitations about Canaanites. Uh, a Canaanite could not be a member of Israel, a member of the... Actually, uh, they could be a member of Israel, but they could not be a member of, the, of God's assembly until the 10th generation. And a Moabite, an Edomite, could not be a member of, Israel, of the Lord's uh, assembly until the 3rd generation, and so on. But still, they could become members of Israel. Israel was not closed to the nations. Israel was open to the nations. They could actually believe in God, become part of Israel. And after that, was there any difference? No. There wasn't any difference. And in fact, the law required that future wars after the conquest of Canaan, Canaan 
you know, they, 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 they uh, would conquer the promised land. There was no mercy there. Kill everybody. Don't leave anybody alive. But later wars, and we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 20, 10 through 12, what did he tell them? What did he command them about future wars? He said, when you go to a city to conquer it, don't enter the city, but announce the law of God to them and ask them to surrender, become part of you. If they do that, they will be your brothers. If they don't do that, kill them all. But before you do anything else, there's an offer for peace. Become one of us. Believe in God. Make a profession of faith and take from the communion of our God. And you'll be, your life will be spared. Otherwise, you're dead. That's pretty forceful evangelism, I believe. <clears throat> that reminds me of that cartoon I saw once of a crusader knight and a, and a Muslim. And the, and the Muslim and the crusader knight is with his pike right in the face of that Muslim. And the Muslim says, you know what? On a second thought, tell me a little bit more about that God of yours. Obviously, God's purpose for Israel was not limited to the nation of Israel. In fact, the history of the nation of Israel, as it is recorded in the Bible, has a heavy focus on that mandate to evangelize the nations. In fact, some of the most faithful characters in the Old Testament were not ethnic Israelites. Caleb. What do you think Caleb was? You think he was a Hebrew? No. His father was a Kenizzite. You know who Kenizzites were? Kenizzites were one of the tribes in Canaan. Canaan. Oh, I'm sorry, my English is not <clears throat> pretty good this morning. They were one of the tribes there. In fact, it is believed by some theologians that later on, when Caleb took Hebron, one of the most uh, fortified cities in Israel, Hebron was actually built by the Kenizzites. He, in fact, attacked his own people. He was a Kenizzite. His name, Caleb is, Caleb, is not even a, a Hebrew name. It is a Canaanite name. It means a dog. How would you like to be called dog? And he was the most faithful of those people there, together with Joshua. Okay, so we have, uh, of course, the Canaanite Rahab, the Moabite Ruth. They became part of the genealogy of David and through him of Jesus Christ, believe it or not. Okay, uh, and Obededom, you remember that name, Obededom? Obededom was the guy in whose house the Ark of the Covenant resided for several months. That guy was from Gath, a compatriot of Goliath. He was a Philistine. He probably, became, he probably became Hebrew after he saw what happened to Goliath. I would too. So later on, God, God told David, you know what? Actually, I like this house. I like this guy's house. I'm going to reside here for a while. And still later on, we see Obededom as a part of the tribe of Levi, one of the worship leaders in the temple. How about that? The Philistine. Become one of the worship leaders in the temple. Okay? Uh, Uriah the Hittite. Another of the tribes in Canaan. The Hittite. He was prominent enough in Israel to live in Jerusalem and be a neighbor of King David. And he was prominent enough to be sent to lead the troops in battle. And he was a faithful Israelite. Well, some Gentiles were attracted to Israel and to the law. And they became Israelites. We see Gentiles also that, be, that became believers, but remained part of their own nations and their own cultures. The most prominent examples, of course, are mentioned in the New Testament by Jesus himself. And those were 
the Assyrians of Nineveh, who became believers by the preaching of Jonah. What do we know about them? They will be there at the last day, in the judgment day, judging whom? The nation of Israel. Okay? The queen of Sheba. She was a Gentile too. And she'll be there and she'll be judging the people of Israel. The racial Israel will be judged by Assyrians and by an Ethiopian. Can you believe that? They were those that became believers because of that great example of, of Israel, of Jonah and of, and of Solomon. Okay? We see, well, there, uh, we see Naaman, the Syrian general. He believed in God. He was sent away by Elisha with the ceremonial greeting reserved only for Hebrews, only for Jews. Shalom. Peace on you. What did he tell Elisha? When I go back to that temple to support my king, because he uses my hand for support, and if I bow before that God, please tell God I'm not bowing before that God. I'm only fulfilling my obligations to my king, but my heart goes to your God. Okay? We see Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, Gentile kings evangelized by Daniel. What did they say? The law of your God will be the law of my empire. Okay? Here's again an example of foreign missions in action. Kings of nations. Kings of empires. The greatest empires at the time. And Darius and Nebuchadnezzar, both of them said, the law of your God will be the law of my empire. Okay? As long as I live. Um... We mentioned Jonah earlier, but he wasn't the only prophet. In fact, I mean, if you go back, Cyrus, who's most probably Darius himself, it's just different names, a Median and a, uh, and a Persian name, he was called by God the Anointed One. The Anointed One. Yes, in the Old Testament, he was called the Anointed One. The Messiah in the Old Testament is the word used in Isaiah 45.1 for Cyrus. My anointed one, the Gentile king. Okay? We mentioned Jonah, but he wasn't the only prophet to preach to the nations. In fact, wherever you open in, in, in the prophets, you will see the prophets preaching to the nations. Preaching to Assyria, preaching to Babylon, pre preaching to, uh, uh, to, to Edom, preaching to Moab, preaching to Ammon, preaching to all these nations. And in fact... They preached to them the law of God and they preached to them the same blessings and the, and the same curses that were given to Israel in the law of God. That's what we see in all these prophets. What about the New Testament? Do we see the same thing in the New Testament about Israel? Well, the New Testament abounds with evidence of Israel's destiny to be a missionary outreach to the nations. In fact, the nations outside of Israel... Whatever modern historians say, the nations outside of Israel knew that Israel was to be a mission to the nations. Gentiles knew it. And I'll show you examples of that. What about the wise men that came to Israel? You think they were just a, a, an obscure occult group, you know, that looked at the stars and thought, oh man, there's a star going to Israel. Let's go and, and, and find that Messiah. How did they know about that Messiah? In fact, everybody knew about the Messiah. Everybody knew that Israel was supposed to be that nation where Messiah will be born. All the nations outside of Israel expected that Messiah to be born right there in Israel. Those were kings. Those were not obscure uh, uh, you know, monks somewhere in the mountains. Those were kings that came to worship the child. Okay? They only followed a long tradition, an age-long tradition among the nations to look to Israel as the birthplace of the Messiah. Okay? That same tradition, by the way, brought Greeks to Jerusalem. And I read, in fact, I, did read, I, I have read commentaries that say, well, those Greeks were there like tourists. They just wanted to see, you know, uh, this type of worship, another type of worship. But John 12, 20 says about those Greeks that came to Jerusalem that they came to worship. They came to worship. Okay, those Greeks, Greece, the pride of the world at that time, the pride of all, you know, the, the intellectual pride of the world, 
Greeks came to Jerusalem to worship. Okay? What about Julius Caesar, the political hero of the antiquity? Did you all know how he, he, he treated the Jews? The, the, the most powerful Roman ever lived, and also his successor, uh, Augustus. Do you know how they treated the Jews? They freed them of all taxes. In fact, they created the first known 501c3 organization in history. And every sabbatical year, Jews were freed from all taxes. No other nation had this status. Okay, outside of the sabbatical years, for six years, the Jews did not pay taxes to the empire. They paid them to Jerusalem. Julius Caesar read the Old Testament. He knew this is the nation where Messiah will be born pretty soon. And he wanted to procure for himself some grace. He didn't get any grace, but he wanted to do something for himself. He thought that's the way to buy his way to heaven. But he did freedom of all the taxes. He knew this is a missionary nation. Don't touch their money. You're in trouble. Okay? He still was in trouble, but that was a different reason. Jesus told a Samaritan woman. Now, here's, here's, here's a Samaritan woman, and... and do you think she, 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 she liked the Jews? No. They didn't like the Jews. They were, there was this hostility there between the Jews and the Samaritans. When he told her salvation is of the Jews, what was her reply? No, salvation is not from the Jews. Is that what her reply was? No. She agreed. Yes. It is from the Jews. Uh, there were only two... Uh, individuals in the New Testament whose faith was commanded by Jesus himself, both of them were not Jews. One of them was a Syrophoenician woman, which means she was a Philistine, and the other one was a Roman centurion. Jesus said, I haven't found faith like yours in Israel. And one of them, the Syrophoenician woman, said to Jesus, I'm a dog, you're the children, but I want the crumbs that are under the table. An admission that Israel was to be that exalted nation, that example, that light to the world, coming right out of the mouth of a person that's traditionally an enemy to Israel. They admitted that Israel had a very special purpose in this world. Okay? The evidence is abundant. Many more examples can be cited. But modern theology has declared God's purpose for Israel was to be an introvert nation focused primarily on her own political structure, racial purity, or liturgical ceremonies. But the Bible reveals those were only secondary issues. But the main issue was that Israel, the, the, main, the main purpose for Israel was that Israel was supposed to be God's missionary society to the nations a herald of God's law and salvation, a nation of apostles and evangelists. And this Old Testament mission is the true historical roots of modern missions, and modern theology of missions will always be inadequate unless this truth is recognized. Now, the, the question for today's church is, after we talked about all this, well, what was the gospel that they preached? They didn't have Jesus on the cross. And we know today that the gospel is what? The gospel is limited to one sentence. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? Well, how did Israel preach that Jesus that loves me so, for the Bible tells me so? They didn't have the Bible, and they didn't have Christ on the cross. So what were they supposed to preach then? What was that gospel? Did they have the same gospel as, as we do? Sure, they did. Because the New Testament tells us so. Okay, in the New Testament, if you go to Hebrews chapter 2, uh, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. It says about the Hebrews of the old. 
For unto us was the gospel preached as well unto them. They had the same gospel. There's only one gospel, and the gospel was preached to them and to us. It was the same gospel. So we got to find what was the gospel that was preached to those Hebrews of the old. The passage that we quoted from Deuteronomy 4, 5 to 8 reveals that the evangelical message of Israel's mission to the nations was the law of God. In the law of God, we find everything. We find Jesus on the cross. We find His salvation for us. We find His instructions on how then shall we live. We find everything that we need. Israel was supposed to preach that law to the nations. When Jesus came and died on the cross, it didn't change the nature of the gospel as we see from Hebrews 4. It didn't change the nature of the gospel. It was only the culmination. They only looked forward to that Jesus on the cross and what he was, he was, going, to be do, he was going to do for us. And now we're looking back to Jesus on the cross for what he has done for us. But the message was the same. The law of God. Believe in God and obey his commandments. And that's, it, in fact, what Jesus commanded us to do in the Great Commission. Baptize the nations and teach them to do everything I have commanded you. And what he has commanded us is found also on what he gave us on, on, on Mount, Mount Sinai. <clears throat> so, it had much more. It had the personal salvation, but it had much more. Israel was supposed to bring to the nations God's commandments for righteous living. God's commandments for righteous living. Thousands of years before Francis Schaeffer asked the question, how should we then live? People were asking that question throughout the whole world. Francis Schaeffer is not the first one to ask that question. He is actually about 4,000 years late. Or 6,000 years late. Civilizations, now I'm going to give you something that you will be surprised. I mean, you think America is a materialistic society. I'll tell you this, there is no materialistic society. Every society is based on ideals. And materialism is never a cause worthy enough or strong enough to build civilization upon. Not even in America today. Um, materialism is actually only the outcome of some deeper idolatrous religious religion here in America. It's only the cause. Our society is not materialistic, okay? It's idolatrous. People and cultures in the past created law codes, established religious observances, mythological systems. Governments were based on ideas, on shared, experience, shared experiences. They built nations on the basis of myths, idealistic myths, because they were looking for an answer to the question, how then shall we live? Okay? Uh, the, I mean, humanity has always been goaded not by desire for more material things. It has always been goaded by, uh, by the quest for righteous living individually and collectively. Man was looking for happiness. Now, of course, today they believe happiness comes from material things, but material things are not the cause for our civilization. It's still that pursuit of happiness that Thomas Jefferson, you know, so I, I think he, he was wrong about it, but, uh, but still that pursuit of happiness was there from the very beginning. And that pursuit of happiness was in trying to find what is righteous living. What is righteous living? How shall we then live? We want to be happy. How shall we then live? Man is a cultural being. I mean, we all are cultural beings. We're not just our individual souls. We participate in this culture, and everything that happens around us is part of us, and we're part of it, okay? You can never divide man into, into separate pieces, individually and, uh, and culturally. And in our totality, we want to live righteously, both as individuals and in our families and in our society, okay? So we're always asking this question. So back in the Old Testament, when... 
a man asked the question or a nation asked the question, how then shall we live? Israel was supposed to be there and answer. Here's how. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And keep going. That was Israel's purpose. That was the job of Israel to do that to the nations. When they ask that question, just like Darius asked Daniel the question Daniel answered. Here's my God. Okay? The people of Nineveh, when Jonah went to them, and they were asking that question. And when he went there, what did they do? Wow! Yeah! Here, here it is. And they repented because they were looking for an answer to their question. How then shall we live? That message embraced man as a cultural being, as a whole culture. Okay, now culture, so Israel was supposed to preach culture. Now today we talk about culture. We, we have a twisted idea about what culture is. It's TV shows, it's theater buildings, uh, etiquette formalities. Um, we, but, but culture is not that. It's not ballet performances. I mean, they're part of the culture, but it's not uh, the Dallas show and uh, the TV show and the, and the ballet and, and the Metropolitan in New York. No, that's not culture. Culture is the legal structure of the nation. Um, the, the institutional arrangements and ideology, the, the practical worldview, cosmology, the philosophy of being, individual psychology, collective psychology, all these things, business relations, legitimate spheres of government, relationship within the family, between the families, in the churches, all this is culture. The totality of man. This is what, what Israel was supposed to preach. And... True culture is everything that pertains to man as a whole. There's nothing that, that, that outside of the culture, okay? There's nothing that you do that's outside of the culture. That's outside of what, what uh, Israel was supposed to preach to people. You go to work, I mean, there's a relationship between you and your employer, or between you, if you're an employer, between you and your employees. That's part of what Israel was supposed to preach. Okay, you go to church, you meet with other families, there's a relationship there. That's also part of it. You go to the marketplace, you trade, that's part of it. Everything. Okay? In this sense, Israel was truly foreign culture to the nations. Why? It had a completely different culture. It had a completely different way of structuring their legal relationships, their, their personal relationships, their families, their, uh, um, uh, their, their commerce, uh, their uh, uh, foreign relationships, and so on. It was truly foreign culture. Foreign, not just in the language and the customs that the Israelites had, but foreign bringing to the world a completely different culture that no one else had seen or experienced before. What did Rahab tell, uh, tell, to, uh, tell the spies? We fainted. Remember that? Think about, think about those big guys. I mean, we're talking about the big guys of Jericho. And Rahab said, we fainted. Come on, this is just a nation of slaves. You fainted before a nation of slaves. But she said, we fainted when we heard of your God. <clears throat> when, and there is no courage left in any man. Are you talking about warriors? I mean, strong warriors? They fainted? Warriors don't faint like that. Just of hearing about a God. Okay? We fainted. Why did they faint? They knew that it was the end of everything they lived for, they fought for, they believed in. They knew it was the end of it. Their civilization was coming to a complete end. It was not just taken over by another pagan culture, preserving their customs and so on. You know, the Roman Empire will take over a nation. Did they destroy the religion of that nation? Did they destroy the culture? No, the Celts stayed Celts, uh, the, the uh, Macedonians stayed Macedonians, the Greeks stayed Greeks, even Israel stayed Israel, right? Romans didn't care as long as you pay taxes, as, you, as long as you worship Caesar. You can have any god you want. We can actually register him in, in, in the Pantheon in Rome. Yeah, and he, he'll get official, he'll get official uh, 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 recognition, and, and you can worship. You can actually uh, rent a place, buy a, you know, buy a, a worship, uh, worship uh, how's that, prayer building, and so on. If you want to have it, okay. But those people fainted. 
they knew it was a completely new civilization that's going to wipe out everything that they had. <clears throat> she, knew, she knew and they knew that the whole world is changing. It's the end of their world. It's the end of their world. Thousands of years later, I don't know if you know the story of, the, of, the, of Mexico and how 400 Christian warriors conquered Mexico. A four million, an empire of 4 million population was conquered by 400 warriors under Hernan Cortes. How did that happen? Their hearts fainted. They knew there was a completely new culture coming. Their old culture is coming to an end. And their hearts fainted because they knew the world is coming to an end. Their world was coming to an end. That's what happened to Jericho. That's what happened to the empire of the Aztecs, of Montezuma. That's what happened to all these other empires that fell under Christian warriors because they knew their whole world was changing. It's about to die. Israel was commissioned to preach laws and culture to the Gentiles that were foreign to them. And that were and still are the very, and that is actually the, the very essence of foreign missions. Prophets prophesied to the nations around Israel, condemned them, not for not obeying their own laws. You don't see a prophet going to Egypt and say, hey, you didn't follow your own law codes. What did they say? Because you disobeyed the God of Israel, you're going to be wiped out. Edom, yes, you're going to be wiped out. Why? You disobeyed the law of God of Israel. Jonah went to Nineveh and said, here's the law of my God. The law of my God applies to you. If you don't repent, you're going to be wiped out. What did they do? Wow. Scrap all these our laws. I mean, they're not good. Let's, let, let's repent and believe in, in the law of that God. Let's follow that law. Okay? And we see that Israel in the old was a unique nation, a unique missionary institution. I would say a cultural beachhead for the gospel. That's where the gospel started from. And it was supposed to spread everywhere, bringing that culture of the law to, uh, to other nations. Without understanding this view of the purpose of foreign missionaries as culture bearers, there is no way to understand why Paul was so forceful in condemning Peter for separating from the Gentiles in the church. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Now, now let's look at what's happening there. You can have many churches today, right? You can have a church here, a church there, right? And, and it's okay, we're part of the big church. Is that a problem? If, does that mean there is a division between us? Not necessarily. The Bible doesn't say that we need to be in an organizational unity, all the believers gathering together in one temple, right? Why was, Peter so forceful, why was Paul so forceful against Peter for separating from the Gentiles? Why is this a big problem for him? Well, there was a big problem. If personal salvation was all there was in the gospel message, there shouldn't be any problem with separating Jews and Gentiles in the church. Well, one is saved, the other is saved. What's the big problem about it? But, there was a reason for the early Jewish believers in the church. They were supposed to teach the Gentiles the culture of the law of God. There was a reason for them in the church. And when Peter separated Jews and Gentiles in the church, he was actually doing something against the very purpose of Israel as a nation. He was doing something against the very purpose of Israel as a missionary to the nations, to bring that culture of the law, not the Jewish customs, the culture of the law of God to them. Let's go to that verse in um, to the verses in Rom Romans 2, 17 through 20. I'm going to read them again. Behold, thou art called a Jew, you rest in the law, you boast in God, you know His will, you approve the things that are more excellent, you're instructed out of the law, you're instructor to the foolish, a teacher of babes, you have the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Most commentators say, well, Paul was just using this to 
to reprove the Jews. But guess what? That was the established opinion in the Old Testament, in the New Testament church. The Jewish believers are special believers. Not because they're more special in the sight of God, they're more saved than us, but because they're there, they were there to teach Gentiles the culture of the law of God. What Paul was saying here is the common understanding about the purpose of the Jewish believers in the church. That's why he says we're all grafted into that trunk of the tree, right? The Jewish church. Why? Because that Jewish church was supposed to teach us the culture of the law of God. And that's why separating the Jewish and the, and the Gentile believers was actually against the purposes of God because you only create the pietistic, limited, truncated gospel by saving those people, not teaching them how to live for God and how to change the world for God. That's why you needed the Jews to get in the church, to be in the church, and to graft everybody else to them so that everybody else becomes Jewish, not in the sense of circumcising, but become Jewish in the sense of building that new civilization, that new culture of God. That was the purpose of them. That's why Paul is so forceful. How come you're a Jew? That's your, that's your purpose in life. It's your purpose to teach everybody else the law of God. And you break the law. And he goes to Peter and says, what are you doing? You were supposed to make them to accept that culture of the law. And what are you doing? You're separating them from that culture of the law. You're actually doing what Jonah did. When God told him, hey, go, go evangelize the, uh, the Assyrians. And what did Jonah do? Oh, no, I'm going to hide from you. <laughs> I'm going to go you know, to other nations. And that was wrong. That's what Peter was doing. That's, what, that's why Paul was so forceful against him. The church was instructed then to take that culture, learn from the Jews, and teach the nations to adopt it. The Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Teach the nations. No, it doesn't say, like so many translations say, make disciples out of all nations. No, it's not what it says. I've read the Greek. The Greek. Okay, it's not Greek to me. It says, teach the nations. Teach them. Now, just like the failure of the church today can be traced to its refusal to accept her status as the only legitimate eternal bride of Christ, the failure of Christian missions to change and influence history in the 20th century can be traced to the refusal to see the mission field as a cultural and historical war rather than strictly personal and existentialist witnessing, quote-unquote. Okay? Never before in the history of Christianity have the mission field seen so many resources committed to spreading the gospel. And yet, never before missionaries have failed so miserably to produce any fruit. There's 25,000 missionaries in Europe only. 25,000 missionaries in Europe only. Did that make Europe more Christian? And we come from Europe. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> in many places, foreign missions in the 20th century produced socialist and nationalist revolutionaries. For example, China and Africa. Did you know that all these socialist revolutionaries in China and in Africa were actually uh, educated in Christian missions? Yeah. The worst communists, the worst communists and socialists Leaders in Africa today started their career as students at Christian missions in Africa. And today, they're persecuting the church there. Um, they produce peripheral social groups. In many places in Eastern Europe, there are peripheral groups that don't do anything. They don't reach anybody. Or theologically and psychologically unstable movements. And we've seen those a lot, even here in the States. The missionaries have accepted the lie of the enemy that they are not supposed to be social reformers, only save souls. Well, remember what we said about this. A man is a total being. He is a soul and a culture. You can't separate both. Okay? They refuse to preach culture because they have accepted the twisted definition of culture. Wrangler jeans, McDonald's, Dallas. Okay? But it's not the culture. The real culture of the Western civilization 
the legal code, that's the legal code of liberty and justice for all, that comes from Christianity. The Declaration of Independence, individual liberties, um, limited uh, government, common law, Puritan work ethic, future orientation, economic enterprise, that all comes from Christianity. That all comes from that Christian culture created by our forefathers in the faith. They're all product of biblical law and worldview. They're Today, they are outside of the legitimate area of preaching and teaching for the vast majority of missionaries. While Christianity has a superior philosophy and ideology for every area of life, and that's the very point of Deuteronomy 4, most missionaries have failed to make that superior philosophy known to those uh, to whom they preach. And failing to see the origins of foreign missions in the law of God, most missionary organizations have crippled the efforts of their missionaries. Too often, the mission's success or failure has been assessed on the basis of number of converts or even amounts of money spent on um, tracts or other limited evangelistic activities. Well, those are desirable, but the number of converts is not indicative for the expansion of the kingdom of God, unfortunately. Okay? It is the nations as entities that we're supposed to bring under the covenant of Christ. And the indicator of an evangelized nation is when a whole nation as a political and legal body, not just as an arithmetic sum of individuals, sees and says, surely, wise and understanding people are those Christian Americans. Because they have a superior law. The prophetic messages to Edom, Syria, Babylon, or Egypt in the Old Testament need to be echoed today in prophetic messages to Europe, the United States, the Middle East, or India. And Christian missionaries are those who are called to be the prophets to those nations, just like the prophets of old. Okay? Calling them to submit to God and His law, accept the culture and civilization of the kingdom of God. A missionary whose only work is to plant churches, save souls, preach the love of God, is a missionary who wastes his time and other people's money. And I'm forceful here, but that's true. I've seen it myself with many missionaries. It's time for a biblical theology of missions and a biblical type of missionary. And I'm going to conclude with this. The beginning of foreign missions was not laid by Paul. Paul was only following a tradition laid in the Old Testament, laid in the law of God. Paul knew that Israel was supposed to be a messenger to the nations. When he went to the nations, he wasn't doing something new. He was only recovering, restoring an old tradition, an old commandment to Israel. That's why he was so forceful against Peter, because Peter was doing something new, isolating Israel from the world. And he was not supposed to do that. It was a sin. Israel was created as a missionary society. Her task of evangelizing the nations was to be carried whether or not they had any liturgy, political structure, or or whether they were racially pure or not. And the early church was the prime example of being a culture bearer for God in the world where the culture of the Bible was the most foreign culture in a uh, a pagan world could know. Today, we have accepted the view that a foreign mission is, a, is when a person with one type of passport goes to a nation with a different type of passport. Okay? This is not a foreign missionary. A foreign missionary is a missionary who takes one culture, the culture of the law of God, and brings it to a foreign culture, the culture of the law of Satan, and converts the whole culture to the law of God. That's the type of missionary we got to have. And um, the mission field today needs to be redefined according to the concept of foreign missions in the scriptures. When we do that, the world will be converted to Christ. Amen. Um, if you... Should we rise up to pray? Okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that uh, for, for, uh, you, you didn't leave us in darkness as to your will and uh, as to 
uh, your mission to, uh, for the church and for us individually. Thank you for the fact that you didn't limit your gospel only to saving souls, but you want to convert the world. You gave us a comprehensive hope. You gave us a hope that will bring the world to Christ, the whole world. And that's your great commission, to teach the nations, to baptize the nations, make them, make them uh, an inheritance of Abraham, make Abraham's faith the faith of many nations. We ask you today to uh, change our mind, change our minds to look at the concept of foreign missions in the way you look at it, as bringing a foreign culture, the culture of the law of God to all these pagan nations and convert them to you. Make them say, surely great and understanding nation, great and wise nation are these Christians. Let's become one of them. And we know that you're going to do this in history. We know that this is your purpose for your church to bring the world into submission to Christ through our preaching and through our evangelism. And we thank you and we pray in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Was it too long? Let's go ahead and stand as... Uh...